So they are starting to, to collect information about our, our travels, our, our plane travels, but they also want to expand it to, to train and ferry travels. Um, they are using algorithms that evaluate the risk that we pose based on patterns that uh, apparently are allegedly indicate a risk that we might constitute a risk if we have a certain criteria in common with um, other perpetrators uh, in the past. Today we are here to talk about a growing reality in the European Union. It's one of its securitized borders, military-grade drones, sound cannons, and experimental artificial intelligence technology. I am your host, Mariam Tanvir, and this is Declarations. 71 years ago, the 1951 UN Refugees Convention codified the rights of refugees to seek sanctuary and the obligation of the state to protect them. In 2015, Angela Merkel famously declared, We shaft there that we can do it. Yet in 2021, the International Organizations for Migration has described 2021 as the deadliest year for migration routes to and within Europe since 2018. At least 1,315 people have died on the central Mediterranean crossing, while at least 41 lives were lost at the land border between Turkey and Greece. The creation of a fortress Europe emerges as an issue beyond borders, getting to the heart of what it means to be a citizen in a globalized, technologized world. It combines political, social and economic interest, with the inclusion of private interests and the development of border technology for corporate interests. The question of accountability is at the core. If state policy includes and can depend on upon the lobbying of private security companies, who are they beholden to? If this technology is produced for commercial interest, can its application be done fairly, without bias or without profit? Securitization constructs a constant psychological reality of war, impinging on the rights of those trying to get into the fortress and those already inside. The only difference between the two is the luck of circumstance. Today we have with us Yasmin, our panelist, who's a second-year undergraduate at the History Faculty, University of Cambridge, with a particular interest in the historical encounter, exchange and intersection of the European and Asian identities. Her research looks into the convivial relationships with supposedly European and Asian cultures, emphasize the mutability of difference. Human rights are a particular passion of hers, and she has debated the ethical and legal limits of removing citizenship in Parliament and, is, and has talked about misogyny in education structures. In our virtual studio, we are so grateful to have two activists, one inside the European Parliament and one outside, whose lives work revolve around the ethical implications of data, militarization and the moving border. Our first guest is Patrick Breyer, who is a member of the European Parliament from the German Priya Party, a political party founded in 2006 under the commitment to privacy and opposition to growing structures of government surveillance. Patrick received his doctorate for his dissertation on the government use of telecommunications traffic and systematic recording and the legal implications of data storage. A self-described digital freedom fighter, he was elected to the European Parliament in 2019 and he is an active member of the NGO Working Group on Data Retention and member of the Committee on Civil Liberties, Justice and Human Affairs. 
Patel recently brought an order from the European Court of Justice to publicly release documents concerning the eye border control, a use of artificial intelligence scanning and detecting of emotions of migrants across European Union borders, which is a fascinating case and something we're going to talk about in this episode. Joining Patrick is Anwar Ruiz. Anwar has been a researcher at the Center uh, Delva Studies since 2014 with a particular interest in border militarization, arms trading, and the role of private military companies in developing state security. Anwar received her doctorate in 2021 in peace, conflict, and security with a thesis on the militarization and the walling of the border space. She has worked in Colombia with young people from violent organizations and has been an activist in Palestine with the international security movement and involved with schools and teachers in Peru. Her recent report, A Walled World Towards a Global Apartheid, warns of the expansion of the border space into third countries and the European states themselves, linking the 100 kilometer of physical walls built to the virtual walls of surveillance and discourses of violence. I welcome you all. Uh, and Yasmin, let's get the conversation going. Patrick, I know. Thank you so much for joining me today on Declarations. So evidently, this is a, a complicated issue and it pulls in you know, national structures of war, trade, economic instability and political violence. But it's also something that is located in the very lives of individuals, of people and the difficult decisions they have to take and their mobility across the world. I think to start off, we should lay some groundwork and look at the European Union as an entity itself, looking at its priorities and its reconfigurations since the end of the Cold War. So Ina, I was wondering if you could sort of unpack what Fortress Europe actually is for us. What do the European borders look like and what do migrants and refugees face as they approach them? Okay, um, mainly uh, Fortress Europe uh, means uh, like the difference between civilization and barbarity. That means for European members, uh, or that appears to mean because uh, Fortress Europe starts with the, ironically, with the member with the Schengen Agreement uh, at the beginning of 18th uh, at the past century, and it means that uh, every country that wants to be in the free zone, free movement zone in the European Union, has to reinforce their uh, border, their external borders. So uh, Fortress Europe starts, ironically, with uh, they, at the same time they want to protect free movement inside Schengen Agreement. Uh, the other, by the other side, uh, it means that you have to uh, be more um, harder in your external uh, border when you want to join the Schengen Agreement. So in the in the the meaning uh, inside that at the bottom of that is that uh, in some manner uh, inside we are they are telling us that inside of this uh, agreement are the civil the civilization and outside are the barbarism the they, those that are not uh, well enough. To be in this free movement, uh, we have to re to remember that uh, we are talking about a human right that is recognized by the by the uh, by the UN. Uh, free movement is the 12th article, 
and every human being has the, the the right to to go from their countries to another country. So European Union uh, are violating when they want to guarantee human rights. In the other side, they are vulnerated vulnerating it. But not only with the Schengen Agreement. This is the beginning of the European Fortress. After that, uh, all uh, a lot of European members, in fact, uh, 11, if we count now with Poland, that uh, have built uh, a world uh, since 19th in the past century, uh, until now, uh, just mainly to stop migration. A lot of these people that are uh, flying away of a lot of violence in their countries, economical violence, uh, physical violence, war, it, it doesn't matter. They are stopping these people uh, the, the right to access to another kind of life and the protection of the European Union. So this is mainly in Fortress Europe. On one side, there is a narrative related with we are civilization and they are not, so they don't have the right to go inside the European Union and the Schengen uh, space. And in the other side, there are uh, physical consequences, like the woody walls, that's, uh, that's an example, but there are also some operations in these countries related with externalization of borders to stop that other countries outside uh, Schengen and European Union stop uh, free movement and a lot of other policies. Thank you, Aina. You you immediately introduce such critical issues that concern Fortress Europe. You know this idea of internality and externality, this identification of the European against an external other, and sort of how a narratival discourse is producing physical realities for people. I was wondering if we could just before we go to Patrick to hear his perspective more within the European Parliament itself. I was wondering, I know, could we just be maybe give some details about exactly what is on the European border. You mentioned how 11 member states have really built a wall, but I think listening to at the end of last year when we had the build-up of migrants on on the Belarusian border with the EU and you have, um, you have reports of fences and Belarusian guards cutting holes in, in fences and, and Frontex, the European border agency with policies of deterrence that you mentioned, which we'll come back to. But I was wondering if, like, what is the actual physical reality? What is that confrontation that a migrant receives as they approach the European Union? I think there are like three, um, let's, let's talk about walls, three kinds of walls. One are physical walls related exactly with that, uh, walls and fences built in the borders to just stop a physical uh, confrontation or physical, uh, that stop uh, that any migrant can physically uh, go to, or go inside the European Union soil. And there, then there are um, administration walls or mental walls. In fact, there could be four maybe. Uh, that, that's related with all, when some migrant just arrive to European soil, they have to face a lot of administrative uh, problems. They are not recognized. They are in an illegal situation. They are um, put inside a mandatory internal. I mean, they are uh, forced to go inside a center. I don't know how they call um, 
in other countries, but in Spain is uh, centros de internamiento, uh, and they are they are in a kind of limbo, legally limbo, because they are not recognized recognized as uh, as human beings with a free right to move. Uh, so there is there is a wall related with how we understand migration. There are legal migration and illegal migration. And this is only based in, in something that we can consider um, questionable because you are illegal depending on the way you move by the, in, the, in the space, in your way. Depending on in, in the, if you have a visa, if you can get a visa because your country have uh, the opportunity to give you a visa, uh, you can move legally. If you can, if you can get this this visa. You are illegal. So, it's. It, I think we can question uh, this this system. So this this could be another world. The other world is uh, the technology, and this world is not only affecting migration, uh, legal migration or illegal migration, and also affecting our population, uh, the people who lives in the in the fortress, <laughs> who move the inside this free movement space, but all the data related with the movement are registered, and we can uh, be considered like people who represent a risk uh, for the system. And I explain myself, uh, it could be like, I want to uh, move against a NATO meeting, and uh, I'm, I'm an activist, and if they get they get all this data, and if you if they they have this data and they they match this data together, and you could represent more risks than other people because they have all this technology. They get gathered all this this data, and with this, you can be considered considered a risk, even if you are not um, a big problem when you manifest yourself, when you are implicated with some struggle, climate uh, struggles or something like that, even if you are not representing a big risk, you can you can be considering like a big risk for the system. So all the, these data are registered. Uh, we are not actually sure about what are they doing with this data. So the, these walls, technology walls are also affecting us. And the other walls are the maritime walls that are more related with Frontex, even that Frontex are also deployed in, in soil, uh, in, in the countries, in land. They are also deployed in uh, with maritime operations. Uh, and uh, we talk about maritime walls because these operations, uh, especially in the Mediterranean, are affecting uh, the way people and mig migrants mostly uh, move and uh, the routes they they are doing because when there are a lot are more walls, uh, more obstacles, um, and more operate maritime operations during these routes, they have to change the routes. They have to spend more money. They have to pay to the mafias more money. So, in fact, these policies are making that, uh, are enriching uh, mafias that European Union wants to fight. 
And mm-hmm. in the other side are uh, the lives of these migrants because they have to take a more dangerous routes. Uh, and one example is the Arctic route, the Arctic route, sorry. Uh, when they close Balkan route, uh, mm-hmm. migrants have to open other routes to the uh, up to Norway. Mm-hmm. So that means more money, more danger, uh, more vulnerability for these people. And also in the Mediterranean, because they uh, stop, go through Libya, as you may know, because mm-hmm. the, we have a lot of coast guards, a guard in the world, the, the coast to, to stop uh, migration. And they are starting taking another route through Canary Islands, also more danger for them. Thank you. I know. I mean, that's such a comprehensive idea of sort of the way that actually the walling of the European Union isn't stopping migration. It's just forcing it into a, a seemingly more and more dangerous path. I think if we come now to Patrick, I think what I know says about data retention really links to the Pirate Party's concerns of securitization and, and how that is incorporated with increased surveillance and these in this sense of protection. And and I was wondering, as someone inside the bureaucracy itself and as a member of the European Parliament, sort of what the conversation is internally and and what are the fears of the European Union or what's the sort of self-styled identity of the EU in creating this this fortress? You know, we've we've just observed um, the um, Holocaust Remembrance Day and one of the lessons that... um, that we uh, learned from these uh, mass crimes of um, the um, Nazi dictatorship was that um, everyone can be a refugee and uh, be in need of um, seeking safety and and refuge from um, such terror. And therefore, um, we have uh, implemented in in um, international agreements such as the Geneva Convention, the right of refugees to seek a safe refuge. Um, However, um, uh, during the time of the Syrian civil war, when um, people had to rely on this and and, um, did come to Europe, um, this changed, uh, this arrival of refugees um, changed the public debate in a way that um, now they were really perceived as a threat and, you know, society couldn't cope uh, completely um, out of line with the actual numbers and and facts. But this uh, really prompted a public perception that um, migrants are a threat. Um, There have been um, some incidents that, that fueled this as well and have been used um, by um, by right wing parties, and actually these um, authoritarian uh, political movements gained so much support and popularity in the course of this development um, that um, also the democratic parties reacted and basically in, in a large uh, to a large degree um, adopted the same agenda of uh, deterrence and um, building a fortress in Europe. So that is basically their way of trying to contain right-wing and um, authoritarian parties from taking control. They already have in some countries in in Eastern Europe, especially in Hungary, Um, but you you get similar rhetorics from other governments, and um, in Poland the situation is quite similar. 
And so that's why they, the European Union is pouring enormous amounts of resources and, and money um, into, into building this uh, fortress. And there is, uh, there is more to it because even before that, especially after uh, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, there is a general perception of many uh, people in Europe that they are being threatened. Mm, I think when it relates to, to crime and, and terrorism, um, these fears are often um, uh, pushed and created by media stories that, of course, like to report on, on, uh, on sex and crime. But people get a completely wrong picture uh, and don't realize that we are living as long and, and safe as ever, pretty much, in, in Europe. And uh, crime is really low, also in comparison to historical, to, to past times, but also to other countries. And... Um, uh, if you ask, um, if you ask more, um, you, you'll find out usually that it's not people aren't really afraid of, of being a victim of, of crime themselves, but they have a perception that the country in general is in, insecure. But they themselves are more concerned about their economic situation, about uh, the results effects of globalization. Um, so often. The, the, the fears are more about social economic um, security and that is sort of being projected um, into a, a fear of crime. Also politicians like to use that um, uh, and, and play the, the tough guy uh, who sort of protects people who are being threatened. Um, you know, going against criminals or even other mi minorities and, and migrants is an easy thing to do for a for a politician and, and to get support for. And um, that has led to policies where indeed um, not only travelers are being perceived as a potential risk, so they are starting to, to collect information about our, our travels, our, our plane travels, but they also want to expand it to to train and ferry travels. Um, they are using algorithms that evaluate the risk that we pose based on patterns that uh, apparently are allegedly um, sort of indicate a risk that we might constitute a risk if we have a certain um, um, criteria in common with um, other persons, uh, with um, perpetrators uh, in the past. Um, and it's not only about travels, but also increasingly the mere existence of a person is seen as a potential threat that required um, to sort of preventively um, keep a watch, um, um, retain data on their communications and even location. That's the, the communications data retention that you mentioned in your question. And um, that's used to legitimize a kind of general a control and surveillance of the population. And that moves our um, open societies more towards kind of a, a gated community, towards the, the Chinese system, um, maybe even towards a prison system, which you would think is, is, is very safe in prison because it's so controlled, but actually the crime is much higher than it is uh, elsewhere. And so... Um, this is the kind of security society that we're dealing with, and there are definitely economic factors with it, as uh, I know I mentioned. So um, the military-industrial uh, complex has has um, adopted to this situation, and they are now making a lot of money in the fields of border security, but also 
internal security. This is big business, and this is also driving the the um, supply and demand in this field. And I know that's something you've mentioned in your writings. You talk of how Europe is becoming a militarized union, or in Patrick's words, a military-industrial complex. And you define sort of what the European Union is doing at the moment as securitization, which is the cultural, symbolic and material preparation for war. And I think, as Patrick just said, life in the EU is fairly safe. It's got very low levels of crime. There's political freedoms. So why are we, are we seeing sort of the combination of a political problem and a humanitarian problem? As Patrick mentioned you know, we've got increasing far-right governments in Hungary and sort of increasing, as we see in Britain, Euroscepticism and potentially Euroscepticism in France. So this is sort of the consolidation of an externality of the EU, a way to sort of not simply keep citizens sort of on board, but also it's itself as an integrative structure of member states. Is this sort of a way of appeasing everyone? The securitization of migration it's happening over mainly because a global context that are pushing for securitization. I mean, not only far right, uh, because it's not only Hungary. There are a representation of far right in every member states or a lot of member states, and they are um, giving uh, answers for a problem that most of the countries don't know how to solve or don't want to solve. Because uh, we, al- we always said, uh, said that one of the problems of this question, of this matter, uh, is that uh, European Union members doesn't want to ask themselves what are they doing uh, to collaborate uh, to insecurity in the world. And insecurity is not only physical insecurity, it's, a, it's also economical insecurity. And all a lot of policies related wa, we, with what um, do that a person uh, feels safe. And that's we call human security. We also uh, talk about we don't only need to be physical uh, security, we need also education, we need also an economical security. We need a lot of things that makes society feel security. The problem is that uh, politicians don't talk about security in those terms. They also they always talk about militarization or, or, or policy, uh, on policies that have to be with uh, control, population, surveillance, and all that, that kind of policies. So. Um, when they question what's happening outside, what are they doing to contribute to this insecurity that makes a lot of people that left their countries and try to arrive to European Union? Uh, there are a lot of a lot of examples, but one of them are the role of military industry because they are pushing in, inside the European Union, and European members have this responsibility because they are. Uh, giving they they their power to influence in the policies they apply, uh, and this is uh, this, ha- this happens when they uh, do forums. Uh, for sure, Patrick uh, should know about that. 
they uh, make the European Union uh, do some forums and they uh, invite some experts in security and between them are, uh, are the industry. The industry have uh, not the, 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 between their main interests are not the protection of civil population. They are thinking about, they have to be prof, they, they have to, to sell more, uh, more products and uh, to have benefit. So they are pushing uh, European policies uh, through securitization, through um, make governments think uh, that migration and even people who um, do free movement like us are a, a potential risk, a potential risk or, or a threat, directly a threat. So what this is one of the responsibilities the European Union and uh, um, all the European members have. They are giving this power to uh, military industry and security industry. They, mm -hmm. they have the spa spaces in the European Union to, when they decide policies and this industry are in these uh, meetings. So this is one of the problems. Mm -hmm. uh, the other problem is, is something like uh, a lot of Senegalese people tell, tell us here in Barcelona that they uh, were always living from fees from, uh, uh, until they, the European Union uh, votes. They approve, European Union approve that our industries go there to fish in their coast. So we are um, mining their, their resources. So when, the, we, when we mine the resources, they have to look for another resources to live. So they are trying to reach European Union and they want to do it so, but they have to do it. So mm -hmm. this is simply uh, two examples that things that do, do, are not working in the European Union and are not working well and are generating more insecurity. And then I suppose as part of that, the sort of contracting out of, of security and sort of private interest, it alienates accountability sort of for what, for European citizens, but also for external people in the world and, and who you can talk to about it. Because if it's a company implementing technology, how do you, unless you sort of put public pressure and you go through the legal system, there's no sort of democratic process that can rectify these policies if there's a public interest combined with a private interest. And I think that Ten, perhaps tenuously links us to Patrick because Patrick you recently um, received well recently won a transparency lawsuit against a security project that was done under lobbying and it was called iBorder I Control and it was an EU project but could you sort of explain to us what this project was seeking to do and why you chose and why you felt this had to be taken to the Court of Justice? The EU is um, funding industry research actually not for for the public uh, good and um, for uh, you know public research but as a means of uh, supporting industry to develop and, and sell products and technology and so in this instance um, the project name iBorder control stands for intelligent border control and what this consortium of um, industry, uh, companies and um, also some universities that participated 
what they were going to develop was a solution for European borders um, by which um, persons that want to travel to the European Union would have to take a, a test um, and answer questions before entering into the European Union. So um, this is something that's reflected in legislation that in the, in the future um, you will have to pre-register and supply certain data um, before being able to travel to the EU, even if you are from a visa-free uh, third country, such as the United States. And um, not only will they collect this information, but also the idea of this project was that you would have to answer questions in front of your uh, um, computers or your, your smartphone's camera, and um, you would be analyzed. You, your answers would be analyzed by technology, by so-called artificial intelligence for signs of deception. And the developers of this technology claim that their machine can uh, determine uh, with a high accuracy, higher than a border guard, for example, whether somebody is telling the truth or not. So would-be travelers would be asked things like, um, you know, who packed your luggage and um, why do you want to travel here, etc. pp. And then the promise was that this software would um, calculate a risk score that the person is lying, would show that to the border guard, and then the border guard could uh, turn them back or, um, you know, uh, subject them to further questioning, um, um, etc. pp. So it's kind of a video lie detector technology. Um, they weren't developing it in the course of this EU project, but the purpose was really to evaluate it and see would it work uh, practically. They, they tested it at three borders, and um, they're making a secret of it, uh, claiming that you know this is um, there is a commercial interest in keeping this technology secret because the companies won't be able to sell it, and if we release it out in the public, um, then uh, basically anybody can copy it, and other companies can 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 also offer similar technology. And I um, sued them over this intransparency and this refusal to disclose the documents on this research that they have. For example, a report evaluating whether this um, is complies with ethical standards and how ethics would have to be ensured. Um, also, a, a report on the legal situation that, saying that um, this technology is actually illegal to use in the EU because there's no legal basis for it. And maybe, in my opinion, it doesn't even comply with um, fundamental rights because it comes with a great risk of false positives. The technology is so error-prone, <clears throat> it can't work. Um, experts, independent scientists tell us it's impossible to tell from people's uh, um, perception whether they are um, telling the truth or not in any reliable way. So it would result in massively claiming that people are telling, uh, are answering the questions falsely where they aren't. One journalist who was able to participate in the trial answered 16 questions truthfully and the algorithm said that she lied in response to four questions, which is already an error rate of 25%. And imagine using this system on um, millions of travelers, uh, just um, how many would erroneously be labeled uh, liars and subjected to um, uh, a questioning or even be returned back. It's, it's, it's horrible. It would probably also result in discrimination because we know from um, 
face surveillance systems, facial recognition systems, that they are even more inaccurate for um, persons with uh, ethnic background, um, for elderly, for, for, for women. And so certain groups of people would probably even be um, more often labeled uh, liars. They didn't actually even test and check this. I asked them about it. And um, my thinking was that, um, you know, all this uh, research going on, and there are millions and entire programs of, um, of security research, including um, border security, but also um, other kinds of internal security, uh, with all this research happening in the dark, and they have recurrently been fu been funding uh, the development of of, um, of crowd control and mass surveillance technologies. Um, that this is really a danger to um, our free and open society. Um, that this um, kind of um, research funding is completely unchecked. They simply argue, look, this is only development. It's not a decision about whether this technology will be used. But um, they forget that um, once the technology is on the market, it will create a demand. It can be used in the private sector without um, any control by parliaments. It can also be sold to um, authoritarian uh, countries um, outside of the EU um, that will be happy to use these oppressive technologies. Indeed, I've heard that um, in China, they are testing this emotion recognition technologies on uh, the Yugo religious minority already. And so um, this is an enormous potential for abuse. Uh, what the court decided now was that all those parts of the documents that um, do not relate to the specific eye-border control technology, but that generally discuss um, would it be legal to use lie detectors on people, would it be ethical, um, those parts will have to be released. However, those parts that are on a specific technology and system, um, they are, um, um, well, of commercial interest and would therefore be withheld. And I am not really satisfied with um, this outcome and looking into um, challenging this and appealing uh, this decision because it depends on the very specific setup and technology whether it has discriminatory effects, uh, what the, the, the error rate is. In order to be able to critically discuss this, um, scientists, for example, need to be able to see the results of these trials, of the specific system and how it's being set up. And also the media and the, the parliaments, the democratic institutions, need to be able to discuss this technology, need to know about this specific technology and its effects to be able to decide on, you know, should this be legalized or not. And um, yes, that's why I'm fighting for transparency, because I think transparency can ensure that there is an informed debate on um, what kind of technology uh, we should be funding um, and where the limits of ethical and even legally acceptable technologies and technologies that are compatible with fundamental rights where these limits are. I mean, that's such a contemporary issue, I think, with techno-solutionism being such a buzzword for policymakers and human rights activists and that reconciliation of, of the machine into the human interests and human stories of migration. And so 
going back to you, Patrick, why do you think there is such a recourse to use technology instead of, say, increasing manpower on the border? And as you said, the technology would theoretically go to the border guard to then who would then deliver the results. But why why that having the te- that technology anyway? Why do we not just sort of increase the, the human presence on the border? Why Why such a sort of alienation? Yeah, they are selling it as um, decreasing the waiting times for those that are given a green light. But really, um, it would be a lottery because you would stand a great risk of, of being uh, labeled a liar that you're not. And um, it's certainly no solution. If you want shorter waiting times, then indeed, you, you just need more border guards. And then they promise that it would, you know, detect uh, criminals or terrorists or something. But... Um, the way they um, they trial these technologies is actually uh, people are just pretending or playing to be uh, terrorists or lying. So um, already the setup cannot reliably determine whether the technology is able to um, identify liars because people are not really lying. They're just pretending to be. Um, and um, the, the whole technology is, is bogus and... Um, but, of course, they have a huge economic interest in this. And, um, yes, uh, possibly um, the, the member states hope that it can be used to, to identify liars. Actually, the United States used a, a similar system called Avatar for a couple of years at its borders, but then stopped using it. And obviously it was because this system is so unreliable that it's not even of any use in, in, in practical and the practical application, because it so often falsely labels people and uh, will not detect the true criminals who are, of course, well-trained when it comes to answering questions. And um, yeah, therefore, um, this is a really dangerous technology. Um, as I said, it's being used in China already for political purposes. It Also, uh, it seems that banks and insurance companies are looking at, at testing clients, are they telling the truth when making loan applications or when claiming uh, insurance um, a compensation? Uh, if this is used in, in some way, this unreliable technology, um, people will be discriminated and um, falsely flagged all the time. As this is really a dangerous way of, of, um, of using technology. It's a very compelling case that you make and it sort of it even resonates with with proponents of the technology. So I think in my research, I came across George Baltadakis of European Dynamics, who talked about the project and he said that it would collect data that would move beyond biometrics and onto biomarkers of deceit. So immediately you have that sort of central parameter of the technology is somehow trying to sort of deter migration and sort of and push it back. But is there any way do you think I know first and maybe then Patrick as a response that technology on the border potentially or, or just in general can actually be reconciled with human rights and and does the securitization of of Europe necessarily have to correspond to a degradation of human rights or actually is there sort of more of an equitable balance that can be made or is it or is a whole new model completely needed? I think it's very soon to know if it's possible to make technology respect human rights because um, I um, 
we are showing it with drones with all all this uh, intention of create killer robots that can kill someone in war without any human being uh, in, involved in that decisions. And I think this technology is just implementing now this kind of technology that any human being involved in uh, in uh, taking decisions. And it's also related with this technology in borders that there is no human right, uh, as Patrick explained very well. Um, technology are taking decisions that are um, very important in your life because they are de deciding if you are lying or not. And I think they are implementing this technology without, as Patrick said uh, very well, um, without any civil divide, with, without um ethical um without without any people thinking about inside this these enterprises inside these companies about the ethical meaning of this technology because they have the power to to lobby especially in Brussels as we know they have the door open to them uh, they spend a lot of money to do this lobby and European Union are are okay with that. They are not doing anything to to stop this lobby and say we have to think about it. We have to uh, think about ethical um, meanings of this technology. Uh, I think uh, the Europe uh, the 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 companies are go going very fast, and they are not giving space to civil society to think about it to lobby about it, to, I think we need to stop and think about the consequences of all of this technology. We are trying to do it. In fact, there are a lot of, of campaigns trying to fight against this technology, like stop killer robots, uh, but uh, technology are always running more than us, and also companies are running more than us. And when they implement these technologies, Civil society almost have time to study that, they study the, the consequences, the consequences. And in fact, we know that we program with drones in the United States. Uh, there are a lot of human rights violations. We know that, and they know that. And still, they are implementing these technologies everywhere, in the borders, uh, in, in machines that can, can potentially kill another human being. Uh, is, uh, the risk are, I mean, we are in a moment that is, it is creating more insecurity than the security they are building with this technology. I, I think that we, we, we need to stop that and, and change the meaning. And uh, in this moment, related with migration, this technology uh, are creating, I creating that as Patrick explained because they explained very well because of the experience in the European Union. Uh, are, uh, the meaning of this technology for people who want to move free over the world means that we don't know this data, what is happening with this data. How are we considering for uh, the governments as, as we are considering as a threat or what kind of people? person are we considered for governments? We don't know that. In the other side, for, for migration, it's the same kind of world. 
because in fact no one that's that it's illegal can go through this technology because these kind of technology are usually not implemented in borders. I mean, it's in the airports, in the legal route. So that kind of technology are implemented for control people that in fact are doing free movement, recognize it and legally. The mm -hmm. illegal people have to face with another kind of wars. And then just to, to finish off, Patrick, I think as I know is saying, we've seen We've talked about the interiority of Schengen and sort of the exteriority of the rest of the world and how the border space is expanding. But as we're seeing the effects of climate change, for instance, which is going to implement a growing age of mobility. Indeed, it's a phenomenon that hit right in the heart of, Ger of Germany with the floods. Do we think the EU, perhaps the policy will be forced to change as just demand surges and this is just unsustainable? Do you think there's going to be a sort of tide of change coming, or is it perhaps it's a bit more pessimistic than than we can be? I think that um, indeed um, to the young generation, and and of course they are taking to the streets increasingly. Um, the um, climate emergency is of of a real and pressing uh, concern, and. Um, that is certainly changing the the public discourse to a certain um, degree. So it's not so much um, anymore about this um, kind of securitization. Uh, mind you, the, the framing of securitization is, is dangerous because it, it, it claims that we'd be more secure um, in a fortress or um, under constant surveillance which for which there is no evidence. So if you look at, at countries such as um, the US or the UK with a lot of uh, surveillance and securitization, uh, they actually have usually high, higher crime rates than um, in the European Union. So I think that strong human rights can, uh, strong protection of human rights can very well um, be reconciled with um, targeted um, investigations and and protection uh, against um, against crime, and that this model of an open and diverse society is the one that um, we should be defending. And I also hope that the the public discourse will increasingly focus on on these uh, um, environmental challenges, but also the social and economic challenges that we are facing, and and also the disparities. Um, that we are facing when it comes to distribution of, of power and wealth. Um, I hope that we'll be able to, to change that narrative. I think that's a perfect place to end this conversation. Patrick, I know, thank you so much for joining us on Declarations. It's been an incredible conversation about how political, social, economic and humanitarian realities intersect. And I think it's going to be very useful for our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you, too. Thank you very much to all of you. That was a really insightful conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. It just opens the whole Pandora box to so many questions and makes you question so many of your existing beliefs. How the internal space of the Schengen, and this, which is a central identity of the European Union, it is dependent on, on externalization of the other. Creating a wall on one side, it's the civilized. On the other side, it's the barbarians. 
so human beings are not equal or some human beings are more equal than others this big divide between civilization and barbarism outside the schengen makes you think again about the lottery of birth and how this fortress europe which was basically supposed to ensure free movement internally yet restricts all the movement externally and how basically migration is not stopping it's simply getting far more dangerous and one line that resonated with me a lot with what the speakers were talking about that anybody can be a refugee anybody why are migrants perceived as a threat when they have historically comp- contributed so much so much to international development and it is the perceptions that we have about the migrants these heuristics that we have made about them and how they are perceived as a potential risk this needs to be revisited and then it just makes you realize who is this technology for as the speakers talked about the economics behind it the politics behind it the big businesses behind this technology it's the, which is driving the supply and demand it makes you question if this is all profit oriented and it's all in the hands of people who are controlling this and they keep the other party out this is a question that technology that is indeed fair is that indeed possible because it might not be profitable there is no economic interest to protect everybody and the the use of this technology in the wrong hands as patrick talked about could be disastrous and again i would raise the question technology that is fair is is it actually possible because it will not be profitable these are uncertain times there's too many unknowns and a state of the unknown of the implications of technology and our rights to freedom and protection we need to have some sense of accountability and engagement with this with institutions and the citizens need to know about this and they must stay engaged and right now it's all hidden away behind the walls as we have seen through patrick's cases because this is a reality that will impact us all getting aware about it being cognizant of it is the first step towards moving the needle to a fairer society and i'm hoping that podcasts such like these will deliver thank you so much for listening till next time this is declarations podcast university of cambridge brought to you every week from the renowned center of governance and human rights cambridge bye bye